Welcome everybody to a new edition of the Art Business Podcast. So my guests today are on the editorial board of the Sotheby's Institute of Art London student magazine uh, called Made in Bed. And I'm going to introduce them uh, in a moment. First, I thought I'd just let listeners know about the history of Made in Bed magazine. So it was founded in November 2019, the start of the academic year then, uh, a year before, actually just before COVID, six months before COVID broke out in 2020. Um, and the first editor of the magazine was an MAR business student, Lorna Tiller. Um, and she was followed by um, Emily Crozier. So basically the way this works is that every year we get a new cohort of students uh, and uh, they take over from the, the previous cohort, they inherit that. Um, and uh, now, uh, the editor of this last year, 2021 to 22, um, is Rian Roberts, who uh, will be, I'll be introducing to you in a moment. Um, just, a, just a few more words about that history. So Lorna came up to me um, very early in the academic year and said, um, I'd like to start a student magazine. You don't have a student magazine, do you? And I said, no, but I said, it's something that I've always encouraged students to do and they just haven't had time or the impulse to do it. She said, well, I have the impulse and I'll make the time. Uh, and uh, she'd already edited a student magazine at the Courtauld Institute, for example. So she brought that kind of editorial experience of the student magazine with her. And um, we, we tried to define the parameters of the magazine and the role of uh, people like myself, you know, staff in the Institute, whether we should be involved with it or not. And Jonathan Wilson, the director of the Institute and I, that was speaking with Lorna, uh, we agreed that we would be hands-off, but that Lorna should contact me um, if ever there were any questions she had about, you know, dubious content and so on. And there, there, was, there were a couple of interesting ones, which I'm not going to speak about on this podcast because uh, I might get sued or something. But there, was, there were a couple of interesting occasions where she was worried about some of the content. What I will say is, because uh, this is quite funny, I think, um, is that the first interview, so, so it seemed to... Lorna immediately, by the way, became inclusive and asked students on other MAs um, to be involved. Um, then they asked whether New York students could, we have an institute in New York as well and master's degrees there, whether they could be involved as well. And Jonathan and I spoke to that and we thought because it's called Made in Bed, which is basically Made in Bedford Square, where the London Institute is based, it's a great title. All one word, by the way, if you're looking it up online, Made in Bed, all one word, student magazine, you'll find it. Um, we, we just thought it should remain a London project, although there's no reason why New York students can't contribute. Uh, we just thought it might get a bit messy if you had editorials, editorial board across both places. But we also encouraged, like Emily Crozier, the second editor, uh, she did her third semester in New York, and I encouraged her maybe to talk to students there and try to get them to set up a New York version that... that was its own magazine that would speak to Made in Bed and vice versa as well. I, I don't think that that's happened yet, but there's no reason why it can't happen in the future. That would be great. Um, it seemed to then, the, the, the main thing that I noticed about the magazine was it, it was, it was a, a lot of it was about interviewing emerging artists, which um, came from the students themselves. And, you know, Jonathan and I thought that was brilliant because it meant that our emerging art business, art market, careers students, if you like, logistics students and so on, um, were, were speaking to people, emerging artists who were maybe at a similar stage <clears throat> of their artistic careers. Um, and for example, in MAR business, we have projects each year which are optional, 
our students are very busy, they don't often have time to do this, but we put them together with like shortlisted students on art prizes for emerging artists as well, so that they can share their art business, logistics, um, art world knowledge with emerging artists, and that, that works very well as well. Um, and in fact, it was the subject, we're working this year with the, the arts family known as TAF, which is the subject of the, another emerging art prize for South Asian artists, so listen to the previous podcast if you're interested in that. Um, so, and, and, and one of the, I noticed that the interviews as they were published, they were saying things like, one of our students in bed with like a professional from the art world. So I spoke with Lorna and I said, that, that's a little bit dodgy, I think. <laughs> it's very funny and I understand why you're doing it, but she agreed and the editorial team agreed, so uh, they dropped that idea. <laughs> um, so, so that's the kind of history of the magazine. Just, I think just one more thing I'd like to say is that when, we, when it started, Lorna, we, we, we provided, the institute actually gave some money towards the, you know, setting up of the platform um, and so on. And we also gave money towards a hard copy edition. And the first year, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, there, there was a hard copy magazine, which was basically drawing some of the best um, articles into a, like a hard copy. Uh, I can't remember how many Lorna um, published, but something like 500. And the idea was that we could leave them in the reception room of the Institute for students coming in for interview or staff, visiting staff to see. Also down in the auction house in Bond Street, um, you know, they, they, they'd appear on the tables there. Um, but then we were going to carry on that magazine as a yearly thing and then it, for, because of Covid basically, it didn't come off and I think, I think in the end we've, uh, it'd be interesting to hear your views on that later, whether, whether it'd be nice to have a hard copy once a year, but in the end I think we thought it was doing very well as an online version. Anyway, that's the me on the introduction. Um, so I'm going to now introduce you to the four members of the editorial board. Um, uh, Rhiannon Roberts is editor in chief. Hi, Rhiannon. Hi, thanks so much um, for having us. <laughs> that's fine. Rhiannon, would you like to just say something about your your background? Maybe maybe you could start with your earliest memories of being interested in art, mm. uh, and then and then how that has run through your life and, and, and maybe also say something about all of the students in the room are now in the middle of their dissertations, their master dissertations. So I'd like all of them to also say something about what they're researching at the moment for their dissertations and, and maybe something about whether where you see yourself going in the future. Absolutely. I, uh, I grew up in performing arts in uh, Australia. I was a performing artist all the way through to my early 20s. And when my body gave out, um, I decided to transition into event planning and more of the hospitality realm. Um, after, you know, about half a decade in that, I decided at a juncture in my life to shift more into the art world and to go more of the direction of events crossing with art as opposed to primarily what I was doing, which was weddings and lifestyle events. Um, so, you know, I studied art history in my, in my undergrad and I've been freelance writing since I was 17, starting with a newspaper column that I, that I pitched when I was 17. Um, so I, I brought all that kind of mishmash of experience, you know, living in Australia, living in the States, um, traveling a lot, you know, all of that experience kind of blends, its, blends itself and lends really nicely to this position at the magazine. Um, with dissertation, I am going Australian with it. 
um, which no one will be surprised to hear. Um, I'm looking at contemporary Australian artists and how they are using their practices to kind of reshape and relearn the colonial history of Australia, which um, you know is, is, a, is a huge ongoing conversation and I feel like it is the perfect time to, to contribute to that. Um, so that's what I'll be looking at in my dissertation and uh, I'll let you speak to the, the three other ladies before I continue talking about the magazine. <laughs> yeah, we might, we might come back to some of those themes as a group discussion perhaps. So maybe Camille Moreno, who is Features co-editor, um, do you want to talk about your own background, Camille, in, in the arts, your earliest memory of art maybe, and, uh, and then what you're doing now? All right. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. I studied studio art and curating before coming to Sotheby's, and in Berlin, I wrote for a magazine called Ex-Berliner, which is an expat magazine about events and what's on in English for the English-speaking population. So I was very keen to get back into writing, coming to Sotheby's. And um, like I said, I studied curating, and so for my dissertation, I'm going to explore how nonprofit uh, programming and curatorial platforms are kind of being incorporated into art fairs and the realm of, I guess, uh, for-profit and non-profit coming together. And so I'm going to write about South Korea and the UK's art markets through their freeze seasons. So I'm going to look at Freeze Seoul and Freeze London and um, yeah. Well, that's good. And so when, you, when are your dissertations due in? Is it end of December? Actually, mine's not or, due until or, January. Or October, perhaps. Yeah. The three of us are October. October. Camille is six months behind. Yes, because you're in cohort two. <laughs> yes. Um, we won't go into that now. It will <laughs> confuse everyone. Um, but basically, we had a group of students joining in January this year, partly because of um, what happened during COVID. We had two cohorts this year. So Camille is in the January cohort who don't hand in their dissertations until late December, I think it is. I think January, yeah, maybe yeah. early to mid-Jan. Yeah, and so your your research, Camille, on Freeze, it is the Freeze Soul that's just happened. Exactly. And and then Freeze London, yes. which is, and Masters, which is which is coming up. So I'm actually just at the beginning of the research process right yeah. now. So I'm yeah. still it's still very broad, and I've yes. tried to keep it that way, just to keep my options open and not really necessarily commit too much. Um, but I'm very interested in evaluating the viewing rooms because I know people have mixed feelings about online viewing rooms and I think that's really interesting. But it's also opened up um, being able to have transparency of pricing, which I think is really interesting. You basically get to see either the price or the price range of all the art at the fair, as well as being able to see everything that's at the fair without necessarily being there. So. As part of my research, I actually photographed the entire Seoul viewing room, which took several days. Um, but so I'm going to do the same for London and kind of evaluate everything that's for sale at both fairs and what that might say about, I guess, the art markets in those countries or how, how the fairs perform in the countries and what they do in those cities and what their value is not just for the art market, but for other sectors that they influence as well, and, and the people. 
Absolutely. And for, for the benefit of the listeners, um, what Camille's referring to there, these viewing rooms appeared uh, during the first lockdowns of COVID, I believe, in a big way anyway, uh, where the physical fairs just couldn't take place. So they, they started these kind of viewing rooms where you were in a kind of virtual fair. And, uh, and the other point, main point that Camille makes is that that is now continuing because obviously they realise that there's, uh, the, 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 uh, the gallerists realise that they can, they can make financial deals through the viewing rooms for people who aren't able to get, say, to London or Seoul. Um, but also there's transparency. One, one of the issues my students have when they're researching is, uh, you know, all of, most of the data we use when we're discussing uh, the, the financial value of artists is from auction results. Uh, so this also allows you to actually see prices that galleries are charging for, for artists' works. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is, um, I can put you, sorry, maybe this shouldn't be on the podcast, but um, we have a, it's interesting for people because it shows what some of our alumni are doing. Um, we have a, an alumna from Mad London, Ariana Khan, who is now director of the Freeze 91, uh, which is the VIP group. And she's just been in Seoul. I spoke to her yesterday. So she might be someone that you might like to. Oh, talk I met to. her a few months oh, ago. Oh, you know her she's anyway. Really lovely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I just thought she could probably put you in touch, but you've probably done all that anyway. With people. I should give her a. Yeah, because she could talk about email. Seoul. You know her experience of Seoul because she was, she she was very it was very buzzy apparently and she was very excited about what happened there. Definitely. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was not able to make it, but. <laughs> she she said, "Oh, you should take all your students over." But it's a difficult time of year. It's before the the semester begins, or uh, I think next year actually we're planning to start again in early September. But it's just the first weeks of the year, so we probably wouldn't be able to do that. It's a shame. So we, we go to London, obviously. Anyway, moving on um, to Alison, Alison Lowe. And Alison is, um, she has a, a very, a new feature, I believe, which is like on plein air or in open air. Um, could you explain, well, first say something about your background, Alison, and uh, what you're doing your dissertation on, and then maybe we'll, 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 um, we'll talk about what that means. Yeah. Thank you, David. So basically, um, what I do on the magazine is very much related to my background and my interest that's traced on the back to when I was young. So um, my interest in the art roots in the genre of poetry. I studied English literature and international politics in my undergraduate and then I had another master's in law. But due to various reasons, eventually I chose to work in politics. So I've been in the field of policy advisory and diplomacy for some time and but it comes to a point when I realized okay maybe my true passion lies back in art and this is the moment during the COVID. I mean COVID has changed lives for many people. Same applies to me that when I was in the Hong Kong mission in Berlin during COVID when all the galleries all the museums were closed from visitors where do I find art? <laughs> so this question pops up and I start to run out to the gardens, to the open air, to look for art. And there had a lot of sculptures and also sculptural gardens and also open displays of art in Berlin and around. So this is the background where I start to develop this love of art again and how I enrolled eventually in Sotheby's Institute of Art to pursue my master's in um, contemporary art. And so my dissertation, it's 
also about public art in open air. I'm focusing on the Fourth Plinth Commissions in Trafalgar Square. And this is something I want to direct towards the notion of power. Because Trafalgar Square is full of statues and is a very vivid image of military might of the United Kingdom. But adding a contemporary piece of artwork in the very square, I want to argue that art has the soft side of power to showcase the world. Excellent. Yeah, um, I think there may be some earlier, have you searched for dissertations in the library website? I think some earlier students might have talked to her. But of course, because it changes every one to two years, yeah. it always needs to be updated. Yeah, um, and also it's probably a different lens to look at plinth yeah. and artwork so <laughs> yeah and I, I think the other interesting i was speaking with a current student about her a personal duty about her dissertation work uh, she's not my supervisee but she's looking at art in hospitals stephanie gandolfi and um particularly in norway where she's from and she we, we were having an interesting discussion about how hospitals are actually very nervous about letting art, letting artists come in because they're worried about the subject matter and content and the effect it might have psychologically on the patients. I think if you put yourselves in the position of a hospital director, you can see, because at first we think, oh, that's awful. You know, if artists, it's like a charity, so they're going to kind of do it for the benefit of the patients. But if you think of your hospital director, I can see that there might be issues there. And then we started talking about the fourth plinth where, where it's encouraged to, to critique those former statues and the history of Trafalgar Square as a part of British imperialist history, military might, as you say. So, that, so we actually mentioned that as an example of how uh, this has actually been encouraged to kind of disturb people, as it were, <laughs> in the public. But in a hospital, it, it's interesting. It's, it's quite different. And maybe at some point in the future, I might do a podcast when Stephanie's finished that dissertation, because I'm fascinated by that. Maiden Bed really had a had a unique challenge this year as well with you know really coming back from the lockdown. Um, you know, I took over from Elsa Ackerson who did an incredible job last year. Um, you know, when they were all writing remotely from from their homes, all all corners of the globe, mm. and they did an an amazing job. You know, keeping the magazine going through Absolutely. such a tough time. But you know, we 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 did have a challenge this year to really kind of revive it and breathe new life into it. And Allison really represents. Uh, you know, the, the 2022 contribution from this cohort, um, you know, maybe last year it might have been Agents of Change, um, but, you know, this year we, we, we got together and we said, oh, we're all going back outside again, we want to be outside again, we want to be in the open air, and with Alison's background it made a lot of sense to launch this new section because it was really the only section that we noticed was, was there was room for it. Um, so now we've launched on plein air and, and we're really trying to focus on a section that we don't see a lot of in, in other publications. It's true actually and you know sculpture is often kind of slightly demoted when we talk about the art market you know I remember when the Giacometti Long, Longy Marsh um, uh, temporarily I think it's only a few months just trying to remember the year but it became the world record for any work of art at auction sub is London sold it and uh, six months later, Christie's sold a work, I think in New York, the Picasso painting, 30s painting, um, for a little bit more. And it was a shame because we thought, oh, this is really good because it, our students can now get more interested in sculpture. But I think sculpture is curious, it's a bit like architecture, is architecture part of like the art world and the art market? 
Not even just sculpture, though. We're trying to re-look at certain artists that may not be taken as seriously anymore, including Banksy. You know, she's got a contributing article in her section, you know, really looking at the the model of Banksy Mm -hmm. in in a completely new lens which I myself had not read before. And mm. it's it's just a great chance for us to look at things, you know, more deeply and to, to get into some things outside that maybe are, are, are being overlooked. That's true. And I, I remember during the lockdowns, actually, um, I did go round, I, I was going around like Camden and Shoreditch looking at the street art and seeing whether people were, and they were still making it during the lockdowns, of course, because it was open air, on plein air. Mm. Yeah, so we forget the fact that street art is another like open air art form as well. And I, I, I think you're right. I think that that whole putting art in open air is something that is subtly growing over the years, if I think about it. We've got in Freeze, London, you have the open air sculptures in the in between the two pavilions. Um, I remember Mab when we went down to St Ives, we went to Tremendhere Sculpture Park. I know sculpt, open air sculpture parks are a Stay, stay tuned for a tremor here. Oh really? Okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> that is obviously something the sculpture parts have been going a long time. But they it's it's the way they do it is different. So Tremon here, they're very interested in it, you know, it's also a very important um tropical garden. You know, Cornwall is on the um Gulf Stream, so it has a tropical climate. So it's also a very interesting historical garden. The curator Neil Armstrong, I always remember his name because of the guy, one of the guys who went first on the moon. Uh, you might remember he talked to us, the Irish guy, and he's he's as interested in botany as he is in sculpture. So the two go really nicely together. And I, I think also um, uh, Hauser and Worth in Somerset at Bruton, which which has a, puts as much work, usually sculpture, out out of doors in the in the Udfeld Garden as as in indoors. So I think we're seeing kind of subtle moves to putting more art outside as it were. And even the term was conscious, you know, on plein air, going back to, you know, literally translating to painting outside, you know, we're not just looking at painting outside anymore. So it felt appropriate to to give it that little twist. Yeah, no, absolutely. It reminds one of the Impressionists, obviously. I think that's probably where the term starts being used. Yeah, I believe from mind. like Impressionism, John mm-hmm. Constable, when they make paintings outdoors. Outdoors, yeah. yeah. But yeah. then we are expanding this whole concept of Expo- making, displaying, and also appreciating art outdoor. Mm, I think it's interesting also to think about how the artist is accredited and how it's not as straightforward how to do that outside. Street artists, what do they do? Do they write their name? Mm-hmm. I think now with Instagram, they can just put their handle or something, but making art outside wasn't always as clear how to kind of have the name attached to the artwork. And that's true actually, yeah. how do you sign it and do you have a little label on the bottom as they do on the fourth plinth, I believe? Uh, do they, 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 they have a plaque. Yes. It's a plaque, that's <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And then of course Banksy famously with his stencil, yeah. but then we didn't know who he was. <laughs> exactly. So, But actually that, that's a completely other conversation that always interests me, is why do old master artists, from old masters onwards, why are some of their works signed and some not? And that's something that no art historian is ever able to answer. It's really strange. If you think of Artemisa Gentileschi and the show they had in the National Gallery during lockdown, some of those works are very, you know, and the signature becomes a really important part of the art. She, you know, she uses trunfoil to chisel it into a, a piece of stone that is part of the artwork, for example. Um, but some of the works aren't signed. And is it the patron that is saying, can you sign it? Or I don't want you to sign it very strange. Um, so that that's something that I still 
if anyone's listening, um, just get in contact with us if you know some kind of academic article about signatures. But anyway, <laughs> we I haven't introduced you yet to Rhys Van Daven, um, who is the uh, the editor of a section of the magazine called Agents of Change. Um, do you want to talk about your own interest in art, Rhys, and uh, how you got to the Institute and what your dissertation's on? Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess introduction to art happened with my grandmother. She oil paints. Mm. I think she's fabulous at what she does. So that kind of always looking at things through that lens. And then my other grandmother was always keen on dragging my dad and us to exhibitions and stuff going on. Um, so I kind of got both sides of that, which I really loved because I wasn't aware of it, but there's probably some connection of, okay, I see my one grandmother painting, but then also walking through these museum walls of other paintings, just kind of that narrative. Obviously there's a lot that happens in between which I think kind of spurred where I am now. But um, my background comes from, I studied construction science and architecture at undergrad. So this is quite the diversion from that. Um, don't necessarily have an art history background, but I am on the MA in art logistics program, which I think makes a lot of sense in kind of figuring out how do you get artists and artwork in front of people in a way for that kind of, transformative process to happen and I think all of us sitting in this room knows like what I'm talking about um but how do you get from point a to point d has always been really fascinating to me and over the last year I can confirm it is incredibly fascinating or at least maybe to me not everyone um but my dissertation is focusing on the world of art storage and art logistics and primarily if and when with the UK leaving Brexit and all of that entails, the measures these companies are or are not taking in the sense of how do they kind of protect themselves and potential disputes of, you know, is there an art loss register dispute? Is there claim disputes? You know, what kind of due diligence are they taking or not taking into the objects they're storing or transporting? because they're not governed by the same anti-money laundering rules that galleries and dealers are. But there's still, you know, ancillary services to all of that going on. So, yeah, and, and before that you studied art, did you say architecture? Architecture As, and construction science. So you were actually, um, it's it like being, going to a studio art school, you were, you were becoming an architect, you, were, you weren't studying the history of architecture. No, yeah, I took, so um, I had a minor in history of architecture, which mm -hmm. I loved more than mm -hmm. anything I was doing. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of, you know, mixing concrete recipes <laughs> and all of that stuff, which is yeah. crazy. That was my past life, but yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, um, Rhiannon, you, you, you began as editor-in-chief this year. Um, I, I believe that is it transitioning into next year's students now, or are, will you carry on working until... Uh, could you tell us more about how that transition yeah. might be made, or whether some of you might remain on the editorial board? Yeah, it, it, it most likely won't happen until probably after Christmas, mm -hmm. um, just because the incoming cohort, it's it's intense for, for everybody. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is something that does take time and attention and um, love, you know, uh, and all the women in this room can can say that, I think. Um, so we will probably be looking at transitioning around Christmas when I can start talking to the new uh, the new cohort and see 
who will be the right fit and what will make sense. And uh, usually it, it all happens around the same time, but it does take a few weeks to get it all kind of slotted in together. So we'll be looking at it around the end of the year. And maybe you could say more, and I'll come to the others then to talk more about their section of the magazine, but maybe you could say more about um, you know, your role as, ed as editor-in-chief of, of the student magazine and do you, do you contribute yourself or do, do you see yourself as guiding developments? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, we, we are a all-female team of 12, which is amazing. Um, it's not on purpose. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we've got dozens of contributors that are either Sotheby's alumni or current students as well. So we really, on any given day, we're working with, you know, a team of upwards of 25, um, which is really exciting. So, you know, on, on any average day, I'm planning content, I'm assigning articles, I'm handling the magazines in uh, inbox and press, I'm managing any partnerships that we have. We have a couple going on at the moment. I'm editing all of the week's articles for publication, I'm updating the website, I'm running analytics, I'm managing the socials, it's, it's, a, it's a big job, um, which I, I truly, truly love and it has been so incredibly rewarding to work on something, you know, collaboratively. I, I, I tell people that it's like the most fun group project you'll ever do because everyone really is invested and it is their own work and you're, you're inserting yourself into the art history canon, you know, even even if we are a small publication, we're a strong one, and I feel that the content that we put out is timely, it's relevant, it's snappy. If it's if it's Camille's features, they're going to hit hard, trust me. Um, but, you know, if, if I have time on top of all of that, yes, I'm definitely working on my own content. I'm, I've uh, released some interviews myself and some reviews, and, you know, it all, it all depends on the timing, and now that we're we're in dissertation time, it's, you know, it's definitely crunch time, but um, it's, it's honestly been one of the most rewarding parts of this entire experience for me is meeting this entire team of incredible, incredible women who truly have some of the brightest minds I've encountered in my life so far. So it's, it's, it's a real honor. Yeah, and I think that's evident for the listeners if you look at the magazine and the amazing number of the variety of articles that come out each week, you'll see that and the eloquence of the writers and the, the such interesting artists that they get involved in for, for, with, for example. But um, what, what would you, um, before we move, move on, what would you say, has, have there been any kind of shifts in the art world since you started on the magazine that, that you, you see developing in the future? Definitely. There, it's, it's more of a global perspective now, obviously. Mm. That might seem obvious, but for a publication that is based in London that takes the name from Bedford Square, yeah. it can sometimes be a bit limiting or we don't want to box ourselves in. Sure. So a huge initiative this year has been to you know increase that global presence. And mm. we've got students going to so many countries, you know, either on vacation or for work or an internship or as part of Sotheby's, we really want to take advantage of that, you know, and so a lot of the articles that have come out this year have, have been as a result of, of, of a trip that we've all taken or something along those lines. So it really is pushing as global a perspective as humanly possible because we want we want to cover as much as we can. And also involving Sotheby's New York, which is something you said at the beginning, which I filed away to come back to later. Um, it has been a a big goal of mine this year to heavily involve New York as much as they want to be involved. Um, and so the result of that has been a, you know, a huge uptick in New York contributors covering, you know, American, uh, more America-based shows and, and content. But also we have a, uh, a New York student who is our social media manager. 
Um, and she she's on there as much as she can. Um, you know, we're we're WhatsApping back and forth as much as we can and, and coordinating. So really, really getting that global that global lens right to the forefront. I think it, it feels quite evident now when you go to the magazine and you look at the, the range of articles that are out there. And I think we're we're doing what we can. That's brilliant. And, and no, it's interesting that you say that you've now got a social media person in New York because maybe naturally it's just going to begin to blend with New York, which is fine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we didn't think, we didn't want to set it up artificially, we thought that, but I think if it acts organically, as it began with Lorna from spreading outside of MAB, it was first in MAB, that was the plan. And well, it that's, that's, that's resulted in a New York partnership as well yeah. with, with, a, with, a, um, with a PR company called See Me. Oh, right. uh, we're partnered with them at the moment. Um, we'll be you know, publishing uh, some of their artists and, and things like that. And they, yeah. you know, it's, it's just been great to, to make more connections and to really get backing for the magazine that, that maybe fell off a little bit during COVID, you know, mm. just, just as a result of COVID. <laughs> and Camille, can you talk about, tell them, tell the the, tell the listeners as well, what is a features editor? Because it's something that I see all, I've seen all my life, but I've never really thought, what, what does it mean? So what, do you, what does that entail? I think to me it kind of just means anything I would like it to mean. It means I get to pitch basically anything I want and call it a feature. Mm. And it doesn't have the pressure of being a review, which means mm. I don't have to be critical in that kind of way if I don't, I don't know, feel like yeah. it's necessary. I guess features is is really creatively autonomous, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so it's something that doesn't fit into any other genres. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. It's more for things that are maybe closing soon. Mm -hmm. but, but like she said, it's mm -hmm. not a review. We have a reviews editor, yeah. um, you know, and I think it's it's just kind of about Camille following her nose, which yeah. is what she's brilliant at. I mean, all the ladies in here are, but mm -hmm. you know, you you know what you like. You have a strong sense of what you want to say um, mm. which I think is important for features because otherwise you just end up writing everything and it gets lost but mm. you know I, I'll say for Camille she has such a strong point of view that ever, everything she ends up writing about is is, is fantastic. I think it's important to just have fun with it and mm. use it as a creative platform for me it's kind of a respite from academic writing mm. which I I get critique that I use a lot of colloquial language. I'm not really into it academic writing, but I'm trying to at least get somewhat good at it. But this is fun. And coming from a curatorial background, I think about the readership. And so it's actually a curatorial platform. So it's like thinking about them and how to disseminate information to them. Like if someone takes a trip, you can bring back information from that place that the readership in London or New York, whoever's reading Made in Bed, wouldn't know about. So that's a great opportunity as well. And just a chance to exercise freedom and autonomy, like being able to write about anything, not having this pressure kind of, of it needing to be something. And yeah, I would just also echo what Rhiannon said about it being about love and dedication because it's a lot of work and I can't even remember how many times Rhiannon and I have been texting maybe at midnight about some very tiny grammatical nuance like back and forth for an hour about maybe an apostrophe or if something should be capitalized like the littlest things that we really care a lot about and we're both really excited to talk grammar but not everybody kind of gets turned on by that. 
Yeah, no, and that, that's, that's an issue obviously with our teaching the institute because we are aware that employers of our students would like them to know about the obvious pitfalls of apostrophes. You see it all the time though, you, you see apostrophes misused in posters on buildings that should know better. And you know, Yes, my mother's a, an editor, so such she's a kind of, thing. call her the grammar police, so I've always kind of <laughs> been raised to very... Um, yeah. Well, and yeah, they're two entirely different styles of writing as well, which mm -hmm. is which is really excellent if you want to challenge yourself while you're at Sotheby's because, you know, you're going to be asked to write a, a very specific research style, you know, Chicago style paper, mm -hmm. um, you know, 5,000 words, bada bing, bada boom, and then, you know, you're working on an article for Made in Bed where, you know, you really have to editorialize it. and. That's that's been a huge focus of mine for the magazine as a whole this year is to make to to make it really worth reading, you know, like mm -hmm. to to give you something that makes you want to click on it. And because this content is fantastic and there's mm -hmm. a lot of academic content out there that is just reading too dry for, for, for my personal taste. And yeah. um, I think, you know, like Camille said, we will go back and forth over over a, a title, you know, for 25 minutes and then we'll, we'll get there and we'll say, yes, this is working. And, it, and then it goes up, you know, so. I guess what you're saying, reading between the lines, is it's, although it's hard work and it's extra work, you have a lot of academic work during your time at the Institute to do now, now dissertations, but it's like a relaxation and it's a way that you can relax more with your language and your communication. Mm -hmm. And it's just really exciting. And I was going to ask, come back to Camille, ask, can you, can you give us an example of something that you were really excited by that has appeared on, as a features, featured by yourself? over the last year. That I was really excited by. Yeah, that is something that particularly comes to your mind. I guess when I went to Berlin and wrote about the Kunsthalle, which is, it was this kind of very tumultuous kind of occurrence, but I felt like I was bringing information back, like I said, and I felt like I was investigating something. Like I really had to go there to get the story. Mm. I wouldn't have been able to write that without being on the ground and speaking to people. And so I think that's one of the most important parts of it. I think I'm maybe naturally more introverted. And so writing forces me to talk to people mm -hmm. and come out of myself. It gives me a reason to have to talk to them. So it, yeah, kind of brings me out of myself. And um, I sometimes say I'm better at writing than I am at speaking. And so it's a way to express oneself uh, yeah and you can be yeah. more poetic because as, as Rhiannon says it's not like academic work you're trying to reach out to a big public who who are engaged then with your what, what you have to talk about exactly yeah. and something you can bridge places speaking to the public too you know something something different about mm. speaking to the public about art than talking you know in a room like this where everyone knows a certain level and you're mm. you're, you're starting at a certain base mm -hmm. but you know we, we try to write articles that you know will hit even if the, the reader doesn't necessarily know this artist or mm. know the background of art history you know mm. that's been the, the biggest thing this year is that we're trying to make it incredibly accessible to everyone not just in the art industry and there is a comment section online that where yeah. people can comment do you do you read the comments before you publish them or or do you just uh, yeah, yeah, they come yeah. through. They yeah. come through. And we'll publish them, but yeah. you know, social media is obviously huge for us now. Yeah. That's it's 
that's mostly been what I've worked worked on the last year is really growing our, our presence on mm. social media, which, you know, takes time. By social media, um, just to talk a little bit about that maybe now and, and all of your involvements with that, with maybe with the magazine, um, is it mainly Instagram you're using or are there other platforms? Yeah, we, uh, mainly Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. LinkedIn is But not TikTok. No, we, we, we did discuss going into TikTok, but we decided, and by we, I mean um, me and our wonderful uh, New York rep, Stella, um, we, we spoke about it and decided that it was just too much of a, of a time sucker. Mm. And um, with the team turning over once a year as mm. well, you have to be careful with the new endeavors that you really look at, mm. and you want to make sure that they're sustainable. Mm. And, um, you know, I didn't want to start, you know, a kind of a, a full force TikTok Thing and then have the next cohort, you know, be a little bit um, mm-hmm. lax with it or let it drop. You know, it just it doesn't make sense for us at this point. But LinkedIn and Instagram are, are huge for us. Yeah. For sure. so how many followers do you currently have on Instagram? Mm, I think about twenty three hundred. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know it's only two years old. Yeah. The magazine's only two years old, and yeah. making uh, making the transition to it becoming much more visual has been a has been a big. Um, it's been a big goal, uh, you know, because like I said, with, with titles and things, you might have fantastic content, but if you're not kind of marketing it the right way, no one's going to click on it, no one's going to see it. So, you know, making sure that the photography is 10 out of 10, if, if, if the photo's no good, it, it, it goes, you know, and we really want to make it as visual as possible because we are an art magazine, you know, and so just trying to put in a lot more in high quality images and really make it all sing is what we've really been focused on. What we hear about when people analyze social media is different generations use different different platforms. Uh, so, you know, I, as as I hear it, are you missing out on a on a new generation of maybe Gen Z who, who as I understand it, use TikTok more than Instagram, or is that wrong, or are beginning to use it as much? I mean, you know, I I, th- I think you're probably right. I think there's definitely room for it to expand there, but you know, like I said, it's 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 timing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's like that for all of us. I mean, I'm sure all of you have had that problem because I've got a Twitter account which I used to use a lot, reason quite a lot. And then, inst- then someone said, you should do Instagram because you're working in the art world. And, and, and so I went to that. And I just, just don't have time to keep up the, the Twitter account. And, you know, we, we know what we're good at. We know what, what, what we need to push. Yeah. And I think that going into TikTok just to be in it isn't yeah. necessarily the answer. You yeah. know, we want to make sure that what we're pushing out is of the quality that we expect yes. now. And but TikTok always look. maybe I'm wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, it always looks a bit silly as though it's mm-hmm. always like riffing on silly ideas and films that, you know, I, I don't know how serious it is. Am I wrong in saying that? It's well, I just, for Made in Bed purposes, maybe. Like, it's obviously a video platform. Yeah. I don't know how worthwhile necessarily, like, you make a TikTok, what is it, of us typing? You mm. know, versus if you're on Instagram in this industry that we're doing, you know to kind of expect that on mm. Instagram rather than I don't know if, I mean, I say that, I don't have a TikTok account. I don't know, but I don't. I would think you're not going to TikTok to talk about someone, talk about their article they wrote. Yeah, like it's not a video isn't our priority. Right, and I wouldn't so, want to condense it down either. You know, because of a lot of what we publish is, you know, longer interviews or or features or reviews or things, yeah. you know, how how would you really condense that into a 
TikTok video. It, it just doesn't it necessarily make sense. It kind of very short video, doesn't it? Right. And I know Instagram responded by putting the possibilities of video on its platform, but the, the only thing, I, I remember a former student a couple of years ago who was also a practicing artist and she did a dissertation on, on social media, um, and she uses TikTok and encourages other art, emerging artists to use it because you can you can show yourself working for 20 seconds. So I can see how it works for practicing artists to be on TikTok perhaps. But then you can also do that. Uh, people like Kojo Marfo that I, I worked with at Mallet earlier and he's a subject of an earlier podcast. He, he does amazing videos on his Instagram, <laughs> you know, dancing, listening to African music while he's painting and they last the same time as TikTok. And when I spoke to him, he said, oh, he can't be bothered again. He hasn't got the time to go on to more than one platform anyway, so. We only have the magazine for a year, you know, a little more than that, and we really have to pick and choose what we prioritize, you know, and <clears throat> for me this year, it's been prioritizing carrying these fantastic initiatives mm -hmm. forward, like Agents of Change, and starting Allison with En Plein Air, and, you know, making sure the content is clean. Yes. And uniform, and yes. getting the social media to be uniform, and yeah. match the website. You know, it's it's been a, it's, yeah. we really have overhauled it this year, but we, I feel that we have really carried forward what the true initiative was in the beginning. And you, as you as the editor in chief, you if you if you bring on a new person, have you ever had any issues where you've had to say, look, you're going to have to redo this, or or do you generally well, find yeah. people? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that comes with the the territory, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, you know, not everything we get is going to be ready to go. Yeah. Um, what what is incredible is that it usually is the 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 ladies on the team are absolutely fantastic and. Mm. There's really not, you know, a ton of crazy work that needs to be done for them. It's it's usually working on our contributing writers' articles and mm. making sure it all kind of goes where it needs to to match with the visuals of the of the Instagram. It's it's more of a spider's web than you would imagine. Sure. It um, is. But yes, no. There's definitely things we get. I mean, Camille and I had to talk at length about. Um, the Berlin piece to make sure that we weren't going to get sued. Um, <laughs> that was fun. You know, which was interesting, and you know, it's always it's always just little things like copyright and you know, Im Im image credit and sourcing, and you just want to make sure you're taking all the boxes. So, mm -hmm. or you just insert a word like alleged or supposed. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, yeah possibly I'd use the conditional. Yeah, which is what you should do in academic essays as well. I think. Because we do have to remember at the end of the day that we are an art publication, you yeah. know, and, and we, we really have to bring ourselves back to that mm -hmm. to that initiative in the, in the first place when we feel that we might be getting a little too, mm -hmm. you know, hence agents of change. <laughs> and I, I guess another question the readers might be interested in is where do you see yourself within that whole world of art world publications? Do you, it seems to me that you have a niche because you, what we said earlier on, that you're all, you're all, very often you're talking, you're interviewing, going to studios of, Artists that are otherwise unknown, um, not you know even in London, but also certainly across the world. But do you see that as your kind of niche that you're kind of working in that territory rather than say the art newspaper podcast, which has always got guests that are internationally renowned artists? And I like to say we're a little bit of both. Yeah. Because you know we on on the one hand we'll cover you know someone incredibly prolific and you know, that, that has eight shows in London at the moment or something. Mm. And then we'll, you know, then we'll be covering an emerging artist who has who's never had a solo show. Mm. And we, it, it comes back to that global global perspective I was telling you about earlier. We really do want to cover everything as mm. much as we can. And it's not possible to cover everything, but we want to make sure what we do cover is done well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're, we are emerging professionals ourselves. Yes. So 
the way we kind of shake hands with emerging artists, you know, that's that's mm -hmm. really the goal at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Okay, what you've just talked about emerging professionals, maybe I could go around the group and just ask whether you what you you know whether you have any plans of what you're going to do when you submit your dissertation. What what idea you'd like to do? There may be people out there that want to hire you. So, Alison, what, <laughs> what are your plans? Are you, what do you see yourself doing in 2023? Yeah, that's really fast forward to 2023. <laughs> and now that, because with COVID, again, we, we are so much blurred with time, right? Everybody's talking about last year referring to 2019. <laughs> so, with this year's learning in Sotheby's Institute and with the editorial team on Meeting Bit, I think there's a lot of new context a lot of new relationships and also perspectives into art that is developed within each one of us. So one of the examples, for example, and I got invited to Venice as uh, to cover uh, certain exhibitions by certain artists as the assigned correspondent for Made in Bed. So this also opened my eyes of like what, um, what journalism, art journalism can take us further in our career. But with this being a side job, I think I would continue. I like writing uh, in certainly a poetic way. Um, I still want to leverage my past experience in policy advisory and also in diplomacy in furthering my career. So it could be quite versatile with any organization that they want someone to be diplomatic someone with policy advisory skills, then I'll be open to that. Yeah, I'd imagine that you're very good at that. I'm sure that colleagues in the room would agree with that. Um, very eloquent, very clear, um, confident, and uh, yeah, no, I, I think you'd be really, really good at that um, sort of work. But nothing in the pipeline in terms of, um, I think probably all of you might be applying for things at the moment and may obviously don't want to talk about that until it's in the bag or, or whatever, but it's good to hear what your ideal... So would your ideal position, Alison, be... What would your ideal position be? The, the, a paid, perfectly well-paid job in the art world, if you, could, if you could just choose. It would be... Would it be like policy advisory maybe to a national... Uh, in a na national cultural council? Yeah, it could be... But let's say I would very much like to work in art organisations, mm. to be specific. So there are different roles. There are like more like public facing roles. Mm -hmm. There are like back office advisory roles. There are networking roles, developing mm -hmm. partnership. So yeah, I would right. imagine. So, yeah, so it could be like for a commercial gallery, international commercial gallery, and working as the as the public face and. Uh, maybe also on policy in their in their galleries all over the world. I, I would imagine that is something that is, can be quite difficult when a gallery like you know so many of galleries in the in the new millennium as contemporary art became much more and more desirable. Um, places like White Cube we saw beginning to open. They were in London. They begin to open in the in the rest of the world in South America and so on. So I can see your role as being someone who's governing maybe all of those territories. I don't know. Yeah, I like something international. Yeah. You know, as long as the job gives me the satisfaction or the opportunity mm. to interact with people, especially international people, yeah. you know, I'll be very passionate about that. Yeah. And, and Camille, do you have any ideas for what would your ideal thing to be doing in a year's time, if you could choose? I definitely want to incorporate writing into my job. I think that what being on the Made in Bed team has done for me is uh, develop the skill of being able to write quickly, especially because I didn't always choose my 
my features, sometimes they were assigned, especially with the the break of the war in Ukraine. We decided to do a feature basically from one evening to the next morning. So being able to write very fast, I think it's just like a muscle. And so that has come into play. I'm currently working in a gallery and they have me write their newsletters and uh, spotlights of artists. So there's kind of a slant of kind of selling the art, but in a more elegant way to the collectors. I think that's an important skill to be able to have. Mm -hmm. And so I could see either writing for a, a newspaper, like an art journalist, or maybe working as a cataloger in an auction house. I think being able to write in lots of different ways for different kinds of jobs is, is what keeps you on your toes and keeps you a good writer, being able to kind of tailor it and that's where it ties into curating. Mm -hmm. yeah, Being able is, to curate your writing, I mean. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I remember Ruth Millington, our careers advisor, she put out something the other week where Iwona Blaswick is rather controversially now working in the UAE, uh, no, in Saudi, um, for, their, for their art projects and so on. She's asking for students who would like to write, did you see that, for curatorial um, catalogue entries for, for the artists that she's representing? Maybe oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, I no, because I, you know, uh, but I, th I think it says, uh, I, th I think it says, um, ideally, if you if you know know something about Middle Eastern art, but I think you'd be, able to, you know, <laughs> you could turn your hand to that anyway, even if you don't know much about Middle Eastern art. Thank you. But um, that struck me as being quite an interesting thing to get involved in. If I learned we anything, too. she's on. She's we interviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> If I learned anything from my MFA curating is that a curator basically gets to call themselves that regardless of what they do. It's just curator slash, mm. you know, whatever. So you can be a writer in the same way yeah. and kind of use it to do anything. And it's quite poetic, isn't it? Because a couple of writings I've had to do for artists that have never really been written about before or they've got a new exhibition of new work that, that is very different. It, it, it is quite, you have to be quite poetic because you have to, you have to, you're seeing things in it, you're responding to it, uh, as you would to a piece of poetry. So you're kind of interpreting like you might, and it, you're, you're, you're aware it's very ambiguous and that it's your view. Uh, but um, I think you would always run it past the artist and say, is any of this bullshit? <laughs> Do you disagree with any of this? And that's what I've done. And they, they all seem to quite enjoy that viewpoint. You know? And artists rarely enjoy writing about their yeah, own work. They don't want to do it. Yeah, and they're not very good at it when they do it. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's that's interesting. And it, it sounds as though you're all coming out with things where the magazine Made in Bed has actually been part of your, it's changed your way of thinking about the art world and about what you might want to do in the future. I mean, if you can incorporate what you've done in Made in Bed into your future careers, I think that's, that'd be wonderful as well. It's also a way to have a portfolio yeah, of course, graduation. you've got a whole group of, you can point people in the direction of your articles, yeah. That's really good. Uh, and, you know, employers do do, do quick searches and on social media to see what sort of, you know, I'm constantly saying to my students, do develop a, an Instagram platform which is about art, not about yourself. <laughs> um, you can mix it if you like, but um, a lot of people still seem to just stick to an Instagram which is just, you know, scenes on the beach or what I ate last night or whatever. And I think you do, would you agree with that? I mean, I, I, I do think if you're going into the art world professionally, you need a professional platform as well. Um, typically students of ours that are also artists, um, you spoke about Elsa Ackerson. So she has a personal Instagram. 
uh, you know, for her friends and, and so on. But she also has a professional one for the work that she does and the, the art she makes. Great example of how we help each other through the years as well with, um, you know, uh, ex-alumni. You know, Elsa's doing incredible things with Art World packaging um, with spongy yeah. bags. Yeah. And, you know, Reese interviewed her uh, a couple of months ago yeah. for, yeah. for Elsa's I noticed feature. that because I did a podcast with her and I said, right. oh, Reese has already been here. So. <laughs> but it was great, you know, yeah. because... Reese is interested in that very area and it just made sense and you know we were able to help Elsa and I think it was it was fantastic for her to have that have that full circle moment where she was once the editor-in-chief and now she's pushing forward with spongy bags and there's you know her own feature up on the magazine it's it's a very circle of life type yeah, of situation yeah. and it's, it's, a net, it's another aspect of the network isn't it of, exactly. the, of, the, of the alumni of the institute and Reese, what about what about you you're, you're doing the MA in art logistics so um, yeah. Are you going to go in? Would you like to go into logistics? Or? I think, if anything, this last year has taught me that I am so satisfied with the decision I made and the program I picked. Um, I'm currently working part-time for an art management consultancy doing um, whose clients are galleries and auction houses and basically doing paperwork and customs entries and exports for their TA accounts and all of that good stuff, and I love it. I mean, I can imagine some people don't love staring at an Excel spreadsheet all day, mm -hmm. but for me, it's more of like finding the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I have this entry number, this is the customs procedure code, where is it now, mm -hmm. what's happening with it, does it need to come back, like all of these different agents you're working with, you're working with Crown, you're working with Queen, like mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things, but then it was really great, like, we took the school trip to Tefaf, and Gareth so um, willingly and appreciatively let me go with my boss for a day. Okay. So it was kind of one of those moments where I was sitting there going, okay, I've learned the backstory. I love a warehouse. That's one of my favorite site visits we've done. But at the same time, all of this work actually is for something, and it comes to fruition in this thing that people actually enjoy and whether they take something away from it or it's a learning experience or you know kind of opens your eyes like that in between this is really important to me so I want to be a part of anything that facilitates that actually happening. It's so interesting because it's so different from what your colleagues in the room are, are wanting yeah. to do and, and, and you know it, it is this it's it each of us is very different we each are born with a different talent and a bit different love and that, that develops and I, I totally see that that, that 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 sounds dull to some people, but like management of... Um, yeah, of, they just want it to happen versus... But it is actually really interesting and exciting. And if you're if it's in the art world, of course, it's doubly exciting because you're... Well, of course, It's yeah. like people say, oh, art insurance sounds dull. Oh, the word insurance oh, sounds dull. it's very exciting, actually. <laughs> exciting, as it is with logistics. And I remember when we were when we were experimenting with logistics, so, we, so I was involved in... in um, creating a, a, an elective on art logistics. Uh, Vera Holshu used to be a, a, yeah. on the MAD team. She, she and I sort of set it up. We were really surprised. We've got 42 students who suddenly realised, oh, there's a future in this, which is why the MA then came into being. But when we went to TFAF, I was taking a group of students and we, we walked around that rather dull industrial business building at TFAF. And it was so fascinating because we were saying, let's, let's, where, where is the logistics bit? And suddenly we saw all these lorries, these art lorries and these platforms and, you know. Yeah, if it's done well, you don't notice it. Yeah, people, it's yeah. dull and people, people would ignore it. And like, likewise, it takes and eyes, the new extension. 
it's got a really, on the very top of the cliff there, it's actually got the place where the art is brought in and out, and there's elevators, and I, I find that really, a lot of people would find that very exciting, I think. Yeah, and I think, aspect. kind of tying it back to Made in Bed, the section I'm the co-editor for, Agents of Change, that's kind of been selfishly a wonderful thing for me to dive into, because it lets me kind of dig deeper into things I find interesting, whether that be just disruptors in the market. So that overlap between Elsa, who's, you know, creating this new thing with packaging and how it's such a problem. Like you listen to people who work in these warehouses and they say, we need a solution. Mm -hmm. And she obviously is lifted as an artist. So she's disrupting the market. And it's kind of this thing where, okay, I get to have a conversation with her about it and really understand where she's coming from and, you know, ask her about her manufacturing process and what her goal is. That's not just, it's wonderful to write about art and, you know, what you're getting from a painting, but also highlighting, I think, all of the things required to actually make that happen in a sense. And whether that be socially, politically, environmentally, through shipping technology, through galleries that are kind of changing that landscape is really important and it's just been a great thing mm -hmm. to kind of be a part of and help lead. And that kind of touches on uh, maybe a, 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 a final subject we could talk about. It's like the future about sustainability that, mm -hmm. um, you can you can probably tell the audience more than I can, what, what do most galleries and auction houses do with the packaging of art? <laughs> oh, it's just not in their financial interest to keep it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things where, depending on your gallery's capacity, I mean, we've I've seen it over the past year and I hope it continues to, galleries actually looking for a registrar position because that's someone who, in theory, whether you have experience or um, the education to do so, like you know of things that could be helpful. So either that be a spongy bag or there's companies like Rockbox and Turtle or things like that or you know, are these are reusable, sustainable packaging, which yeah. you use again. And then we had an assignment where it was like, how would you come up with something? And I had friends who, you know, were thinking of there should be like a lending library. So like galleries can lend the plinth to put the thing on and then it goes back. So it's not just made once and then destroyed. Mm -hmm. Like how can we, through connecting all of these bits and all of these kind of logistics, which that word really does encapsulate everything, to make it something that lets this keep happening going yeah. forward. Yeah. And that we're not part of a problem. We are actually, you know, as much as we positively contribute culturally, but also physically and everything else that goes with that. No, absolutely. It's, uh, so what you're saying is the work that you're doing in logistics is, is an integral, it's not a bolt-on, it's an integral part of what's happening in the creative art world. And artists themselves, as we know, many artists are very interested also in those issues. Oh, absolutely. I think yeah. it's because you have conversations where I've been talking to heads of galleries or we're on visits and they hear we're in logistics and they pull us aside and ask us questions. Yeah. Because it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't know quite how it happens, <laughs> but it just does. Yeah. So how do you best navigate that? How do you yeah. get a painting in and out of this country? Yeah. You know, anti-money anti laundering regulations, you know. Yeah. Is it something that can even come in? Is it, you know, out of ivory? All of those questions that are circulating and sanctions and yeah, and it's, it's it's a it's a hidden part of the art world. So if you go into a commercial gallery um, and you ask them, do you have a registrar? They said, oh yeah, of course we do. But they don't. You'd never hear about a registrar unless you ask about it. In right. my experience, you know, they just don't talk about it. It's the it's the behind the scenes bit. 
But they say, no, that's one of the most important things of what we do is having a good registrar. And a lot of them just hire people in on a freelance basis, but some of them actually have a full-time post for that. As, of course, every major museum will have a registrar, which is doing a similar thing, but in the public sector. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think with it being post-Brexit, a lot of galleries aren't quite sure because from my current job, it's obviously you can't just go with the... um, documents that let it circulate the EU, you have all of this other stuff yeah, well, coming Brexit in and out of a problem, no. Brexit and with London being a huge hub, people mm. don't quite know how to navigate that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm aware that we've been, um, also aware of the time, but I'm aware that we've been speaking a lot about the contemporary world. And I, I, I know that Camille is working on archives at Chiswick House. Uh, which is an 18th century Palladian villa in West London uh, that, that was built by Lord Burlington after the Grand Tour experience in a kind of classical style. So just to take it slightly away towards the end from the contemporary world, do you want to say a little bit more about, about your work at Chiswick House? Is it um, to do with the past? And the, and the actually, vendors? it's interesting because the Chiswick House, it's kind of... Um, so British... Heritage, the English Heritage, English yeah. heritage yeah, yeah. sorry. Which is a charitable organisation that protects heritage buildings. They know, kind of get to decide what is exhibited or not in Chiswick House. Mm-hmm. And while I was working in the archives, someone, one of the Chiswick residents came forth. Her father was a painter and had painted a lot of scenery of the chapel and other things on the Chiswick mm-hmm. premises and wanted to donate the paintings to Chiswick House. And basically, English Heritage rejected them. Mm-hmm. And so the archivist, she said, well, we'll take them. We'll put them in the archive. Mm-hmm. And so one of the most exciting days was when we received these paintings, got to meet the woman whose father painted them, talked about how she used to come to Chiswick as a child, mm-hmm. and finding a place for these paintings to kind of be rightfully looked after when English heritage had basically rejected them, mm-hmm. which made me feel complicated. You know, I was yeah. like, well, she wants us to have them and they deserve to be kind of honored in some way. And so how do we find a place for them in the archive? So that was really interesting. Yeah, and these these are important, I think you'll all agree, that you're you're very much working like with emerging artists and so on, um, and in your own lives that um, we, we mustn't kind of ignore the kind of heritage of earlier artists that deserve to be remembered and, um, uh, and lauded and praised and, and re-aired occasionally. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, maybe to end the podcast with uh, what's going on in London at the moment with the memory, you know, if, you, if you're watching the TV and listening to radio in Britain, it's all constantly film remember, reminding us of the Queen's service to the people of great the United Kingdom and so on. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar idea, isn't it, that we mustn't, mustn't forget dead artists, basically, or, or curators. Think of people like Peggy Guggenheim. We need to remember them because they feed into what we're doing today. And, you know, maybe sometimes they've got it wrong, so it can help us to make it right in the future. Um, so, you know, it's just quite nice maybe to finish on that, that note of um, remembering the past as well. I think so, definitely. And it, I would just say one point, especially with our team being all women, like we're very aware that that's 
not historically maybe something that Absolutely. would be happening. So I think we yeah. all have our own experiences navigating yeah. this, but in the sense of like we are where we are today. And that's also, I think, what gives a lot of us a fire to drive what we're doing is like we're going for it. And it's just kind of... Yeah, and that, it's again, it is. thinking, you know, when you visit the Guggenheim Venice and watch the films of, right, of, Peggy's of Peggy it. Guggenheim, I've, you yeah. realise the issues she's had in her life because of patriarchal cultures and so on. So I guess you see yourself as a group of women that are kind of taking this forward and challenging and, you know. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've always thought that, you know, people say to me, why, even students themselves, they say, why, why are there so few guys, like men? And I said, well, look, A, we shouldn't, we don't talk about sexual, gender, and orientation anywhere anymore. We try not to. But B, it's really good because we're putting all these alumni who are now, you know, people like Melanie Gerlis and Lauren Randolph and Freeze America, they're all MAB alumni from like 15, 20 years ago. And they're all beginning to bring more powerful women into that traditionally patriarchal world. So, yeah, you know. Maiden is catching all of these women and whichever men join as well, you know. Yeah we're catching them at the point where they're about to go out into the workforce and yeah. do all these different things, you know, yeah. which is so fascinating and interesting. And you can really, you can really tell that when, when you're involved in something with Made in Bed, you know, you're, you're going to take it with you. And that's really what I've learned this year is that the, con the connections that I've made, the relationships that I've fostered, all of us, you know, not even just within the team, but with artists that we've met, with art world professionals, you know, each one means something and it contributes to a wider conversation and to our individual careers and mm. just as a community in general. And that's what I really like to say we are as a, as a, as a little Sotheby's community. And in some ways, therefore, just coming back to something we spoke about earlier and linking to what Camille said about archives, that's where a hard copy could be quite a useful thing. Mm. It might be a conversation we can continue to have about whether it would be nice to create a hard copy. We are actually looking at having a hard copy yeah. come out this year. Good, yeah, good. Right. yeah, at the end of it's, the year. It's just a physical memory exactly. that can Absolutely. be archived and put in the library. Yeah, it'll be yeah. the best of 2022, so everybody's favourite pieces that they've done will Great. go in, and uh, we're, we're hoping to have it printed around November. Yeah, again, um, lots of hard work. Exactly, and dissertations need to be handed in. Yeah, and, then, um, <laughs> and, then, and that will be a nice follow-up, um, exactly. and, and then before the new cohort. Um, yeah. take over next we, year. we are trying to I've been thinking about what you said about disrupting and we are I feel like that's a great word but we're we're gentle disruptors you know <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you've because, got to, yeah that, and that's what's elegant so fantastic about this platform and having that creative freedom to you know if, if Camille comes to me and says oh I know this is happening right now and it's it's we could we could get in there first and you know you know it's yeah. the possibility of getting in there first and really yeah. digging deep into this content and and disrupting the art world for the better but also you know acknowledging where we've come from in the past and, and kind of trying to blend it all together through this this weird little art loving community of fantastic women yeah well on that note i'd like to thank you very much for giving up your time today in the middle of writing and researching your dissertations applying for jobs etc i think the listeners will find that so interesting i've certainly enjoyed it and it's really good to give this fantastic magazine made in bed you know, a voice on the podcast and, um, you know, to ask listeners to look out, go to the website and look out for the hard copy. Maybe, I don't know, if, I think when it, the first edition came out, they, they actually sold it and actually, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, be a modest price, I think. And um, um, so look out, look out for it and order a copy. It'll be a collector's item in the future, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, David. Bye. Bye.